Uh, we're going to have the Bibles come down here in a little bit, but before we get going, one of the things, I'm going to be sitting down today. Um, I yanked my back this morning, and uh, everybody's looking and going, oh, what happened? I got old, man. I'm like, jeez. <laughs> I wish I could tell you a cool story. You know, I was lifting weights or something, and I tweaked my back, but I turned wrong, you know, <laughs> so... Anyways, we'll, we'll see how that goes from here, but um, would you join me in prayer, and then afterwards I'll let the guys uh, bring the Bibles down. Father, just thanks for uh, what you're, you're doing in and through people's lives, like Cindy. Thanks for, for Cheryl and Terry and Chris. And Father, I just, what a thrill. I get to stand in front of a bunch of people that truly are their gifts from you. It's a thrill to shepherd. And Father, sometimes I just... Uh, I don't even know how to tell you thank you for the blessing of getting to shepherd this group of people. So I praise you for that. I pray that you would help me today, help me to communicate in spite of this stuff. And, and would you also, through the power of your spirit, would you open ears and hearts? And even, Father, I don't even know. There might be people in here that don't know you. Would today be the day they know you? And so we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. All right. Well, let me start off a little bit of a story. So in light of starting to talk about a symphony, I decided I was going to actually watch an orchestra. So I popped it up on YouTube. I'm looking around. I'm like, okay, what am I going to look at? I'm like, I saw Beethoven's Ninth once, so I popped in Beethoven's Ninth, and I'm sitting there watching it. Now, you've got to understand, though, for me to watch right now an orchestra do a symphony is incredible because it's the NCAA tournament right now. For someone that loves college basketball like I do, this is truly the most wonderful time of the year. Skip Christmas, man. It's NCAA tournament, right? But I did, you know, and so I thought, okay, I'll watch. And it was actually pretty good. All right, I'll, I'll give it to him. But I just, here's what I remember about it. The moment that kind of all this stuff got away and they just showed the entire concert hall. And the lighting was just perfect, right? It was soft, it was elegant, and everything was shining down in this perfect way. All the people that were sitting out in the audience were dressed to the nines, looking all good. The instruments were polished up, whether it was brass or chrome or wood, everything. It was just the, the, the lighting was just sparkling all over the place. And then, like I've, I've talked about it before, here came the conductor. And he got up to his little thing, right, and he kind of situated things, picked up his little baton, and you can just tell this confidence he had. It was almost like he should have just turned around and told everybody, hey, just so you know, you're going to be standing and clapping when we're done. I just thought you should know that. Anyways, here we go. He prepped everything, orchestrated everything, worked through how all the parts came together, and when he tapped his baton on the stand, and then he raised his hands. If you've ever been to a, an orchestra before, doesn't it just kind of leave you with this weird breathlessness right before it comes out? And then all of a sudden, he waved the whole thing into motion, and it all started. Now, I don't really remember a whole lot past that, because I kind of got bored in the middle of it. <clears throat> but here's what I thought. Okay, here's what I thought. Palm Sunday was a day in which the king of all kings was ushered into Jerusalem, just like the conductor. 
Jesus came in, the whole crowd yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And it was almost in this one moment, right before he goes to his death, he taps on it. And he says, we're about ready to do something special here. Now, maybe going to a cross and then being raised from a tomb isn't what everybody expected. But at the end of it, he formed together this church, this orchestra. There was a confidence to him, right? Matthew 28, 18 tells us that that literally all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, that he's now this king of all kings, lord of all lords, that he, he fixed the problem between us and God. We used to be enemies of God, and he ripped the veil, completely tore it across, so that now humanity might have access to God the Father through him. He tore down all the fences between racial backgrounds. He tore down fences between gender. He tore background between socioeconomic conditions. Jesus was standing there in this one moment ready to tear everything down and be truly the king of all kings and lord of all lords and he stood now in front of his church ready to orchestrate this movement into action. Now you know the whole angelic realm is going, what's going to happen? And a few days later the church got kicked off. And for 2,000 years, Jesus has been orchestrating the church on every single continent, moving different groups of people together to accomplish his task. We are involved, and this is what I always say, and I don't know if anybody believes it, we are involved in the greatest endeavor of all time that those of us in here that know Jesus Christ, we're involved in the church. It's special. It's unique. Like sometimes as I, I communicate this, I, I wonder, are you sitting out there understanding how incredible it is that you are, if you know Jesus Christ, you're a blood-bought individual, that you're involved in this gathering of people from all over the world, and that one day, Jesus Christ, there's going to be a blow of the trumpet, there's going to be a shout, he's going to usher us off to enjoy him forever. Do we understand what we're a part of? And that's what Paul's trying to get the Corinthians to understand here in 1 Corinthians. He wants them to get and to understand that this church thing is special. See, I think sometimes we don't think the church is special because all we think about is a building. Or we think about an organization. But what Paul's thinking about is these individual people and who they are. These blood-bought ones that he's pulled all together throughout all fallen humanity, put them into this, this group of people that now exalt Jesus Christ. He's pulling them together to accomplish a task. The grand orchestra that God's putting together, that's who we are. When I wake up and I go to bed throughout my day, we're involved in what God is doing. And that's what Paul's trying to get across to them. Every one of you in here, just listen when I say this. Every one of you in here are involved as a group of people. The church is God's declaration to the world through word, through deed, of his solving all the brokenness that there is. We're involved in the greatest thing ever. In 1 Corinthians 12, his big thing, and you can open it up, and if you need a Bible, the guys will come down. You can just raise your hand. In 1 Corinthians 12, he's going to start to help us understand a little bit about what's the problem that's going on. And that's what Paul's going to, 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 to answer into them, is what is it that's holding them back from really getting engaged and involved in what God's doing? Now, the question that they ask in verse 1, just to kind of recap us into this, the question they're asking is who or what is really spiritual? That's what they're trying to ask. 
They'd written him. They wanted to know, okay, Paul, tell us who is really spiritual. What is really spiritual? What is it that, that we can look at that tells us what spiritual is? And what Paul's going to do is he's going to come at this from an angle that they weren't expecting. He's going to answer these two questions, and especially when we get into verses 12 through 14, he's going to start to unpack for us this. He's going to answer this question. What is spiritual and who is spiritual? Okay, that's the first thing he's going to do. Now look down into uh, uh, to verse 12, and let me kind of show you, and we'll unpack this a little bit so we can understand this idea of who or what is spiritual. Verse 12. For just as the body is one, and it has many members... And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, he says now, but a bunch Now, to answer the question, the first one he's going to get after is, what is spiritual? He's going to answer this in verses 12 through 14. And let me kind of try to walk it through a little bit. In verses 12 through 14, in answering this question of what, he wants him to ask the question, what is it that brings you all together? That's going to tell us about what is spiritual. What is it that pulls you together to make you one? That's going to tell us what is spiritual. Now, from last week, and look back into verse 1. He was using this word. See that word spiritual gifts in verse 1? Does everybody see that? You with me? Yes. No. Good. All right. Good. All right. Here we go. If you remember right, Josh told us that word, and it's, it's, just, it's a Greek word, pneumatikos. We get our word pneuma from it, or spirit. They were asking about spiritual things. What are spiritual things is what we talked about. But what he's going to do, look down in verse 4. To help us understand what is spiritual, he's going to shift that word away from that pneumatikos, that word spiritual that's up in verse 1, and he's going to give us this word charisma or charismata. Now Paul's going to answer what is spiritual, but first we have to understand what is charisma because that's the thing he says in verse 4 that begins to pull it all together. That's what the Holy Spirit uses to pull this church together. Now here's the key to this. To understand what charisma or charismata is, you've got to understand what charis is, and charis is the word grace. One of Paul's favorite words. Grace isn't something that was, that was flippant to him. It was something that was powerful to him. It was one of his most favorite terms, most favorite, I don't even know if that's correct, favoritist, which is it? Most favorite, I had it right. Dang it. I could have looked smart. But it was a reality to him. It wasn't something just to make him feel warm and fuzzy. It wasn't just a song that we sing for him. Once we grasp the massive scope of grace, our lives begin to be transformed. For him, when he gets into chapter 15, he's going to talk about this in verse 10. He says, sure, I worked harder than all of them, but the reason that I worked hard was not out of guilt, was not out of shame, was not out of all these other things. Do you want to know why I worked hard? Grace. I started to understand grace. That's what pulls this thing together. And one of the things about it is we might motivate ourselves out of guilt or shame, but it's not sufficient. Guilt and shame don't motivate us. We might hear a sermon and go, oh boy, that thing was convicting. 
But if there's no grace, it doesn't matter. Guilt and shame might stop us in our, our sin, but grace compels us. I don't know if you remember, I gave you guys a definition, uh, I think it was like 20 years ago when we started 1 Corinthians, and um, it was by a guy named Paul Zoll. You remember that? I wanted to change my name to Todd Zod. That's what I wanted. <clears throat> I'm going to throw it up on the screen. It's, just, it's a definition of grace. Let me just kind of show it to you. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. The cliche definition of grace is unconditional love. It's a true cliche, for it is a good description of the thing. Let's go a little further, though. Grace is a love that has nothing to do with you, the beloved. It has everything and only to do with the lover. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do with intrinsic qualities or so-called gifts, whatever they may be. It reflects the decision on the part of the giver, the one who loves, in relation to the receiver, the one who is loved, that negates any qualifications the receiver may personally hold. Grace is one-way love. Isn't that good? Now we can start to understand when he's saying, what's this thing? What is what is spiritual that pulls us together? We start to understand it in grace. Another friend of mine, he put it this way. It's, it's, it's just kind of the definition of grace for dummies. This one hits me more. Let me show you this next definition. And I love this. Grace is God's aggressive pursuit of and stubborn delight in messed up people. And since we're all really messed up, and I love the, the way he contrasts this. Homeschool moms and porn stars, Awana champions and suicide bombers. By the way, they homeschool, so don't get angry at me. We're all equally in desperate need of God's grace. See, now all of a sudden we start to understand charisma. See, charisma now flows out of that. When you put this all together, and especially by the time we get to chapter 13, where he's going to talk about love, is the activity of the Holy Spirit, the charisma, is what pulls a bunch of messed up people together to accomplish this task of being the orchestra. It's this thing that Paul calls love. It's grace that says, I'm going to love you in spite of you. I'm going to love you because of not who, how great I am or how great you are. Just by the simple fact that you're included into this body of people, I'm going to love you because you're one of God's. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to do activities to come around you. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, Paul says, you can do all the most incredible things in the world, but if there's no love, then there's just a clanging symbol. That's all you are. He wants them to get our symphony that we're involved in this orchestra is meaningless without love. That's the thing he's talking about that starts to pull this together. So the what is spiritual is answered in this statement that we're going to go further in into chapter 13 is love. So who is spiritual? The answer to that question is found down in verse, in verse 13. Look there with me. Who's spiritual? If what is spiritual are the people that are embodied that serve out of love, verse 13, he's going to answer it and say, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So the who is spiritual is simply just those who are in Christ. Here's the great news for everybody in this room. 
There is no such thing as a super spiritual person. And if you think you are, you're not. If you are in Christ, you're spiritual. That's what defines spiritual is this simple reality of being included into Christ. Let me just show you some things from chapter 1 where he kind of starts it off and he, he lays out for us what this begins to look like. In verse 1, we find out that all of us that are in Christ are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. I bet you didn't know that we can call you Saint Todd and Saint Margaret. They would be sustained guiltless to the end. Do you understand that you are not the one who decides how you finish in the end, but it's God? Paul in Romans 8 says there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God, not even yourself. So this idea of me losing my salvation is ridiculous because he's the one who's faithful, verse 9. The grace of God that was given to them in Christ Jesus had already arrived amongst them. They weren't waiting for more spirituality. They weren't waiting for a second blessing. They weren't waiting for something else to happen. They were enriched. The testimony of Christ was confirmed among them. They were not lacking in any in any spiritual gift or charisma. They had made it. They had arrived. Who they were is what matters. So when we ask what it was, it's all this idea of love, but when you ask who it is, it is all of us who are in Christ Jesus that have come to him by faith. If you're somebody in here that does not know Jesus Christ today, you are not spiritual. Not because any of us are better than you, but everything is defined by the reality of being in Christ, one of his. Now what's key and where he's going to go with this, it's important to the rest of the text, is we've got to see people this way. Your value inside of our church is not based upon what you can do, it's based upon who you are. And if you know Christ, you are sons and daughters of the King. God gave you value. You don't have to wait around or try to earn value. It is given to you. You were called into this. God made you and pulled you in the family. He's made you holy. You're special in his sight. And so therefore, who is spiritual are all those who come to Christ by faith. And what is spiritual are all those that love like Jesus Christ loved. That's what he's trying to get at here. That's going to be the context of his argument that he's going to build then in 15 through 26. So is everybody with me? You with me? Okay, all right, just making sure. Everybody do this. Okay, here we go. Now, what we've been trying to do, and I've got to stand up. Sorry, my back is killing me. What he's trying to do with this is it, in the past, past two weeks, we've used this idea of an orchestra. Now, what Paul's going to do when you look down at verse 15 is he's going to now shift this analogy to help us understand verses 12 through 14 by using this word body. Everybody see that down in verse 14, 12 through 14? Everybody with me? Okay, good. Sorry, I just got to make sure. He's going to play it out for us in this idea of a body. Now, Paul wasn't the first one to use this idea of a body. What would happen at this particular time when you read about writers, they would talk about the state or the empire. That was the body. 
And so the way they would do it is, is that the emperor or Caesar, he was the head of the body. And then all the important parts were like the rich people. And you'd work your way all the way down to the plebs and the slaves. They were kind of the people that didn't matter. That was the body inside of the Roman Empire. Now what Paul's going to do that's so unique is he's going to grab the way they thought about body and he's going to flip it upside down. He wants them to get the fact that in this They would always talk about the rest of the body is supposed to nourish the head. They were supposed to nourish Rome. They were supposed to take care of Rome. They were to give things to them, provide for them, and then Rome and its benevolence would give them the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. But Paul is essence saying to them, what does God need? He doesn't need anything. What are we going to give to the head besides praise? And he says, and if that's the case, then, all of us that have been graced, we don't need things from people as far as I don't need money. I don't, I don't need certain aspects of what people can give me. In fact, because I've been graced so much, I can now grace others. This is his idea. We don't have to be like Rome. We can be like something completely different. He wanted them to get we're just a new form of humanity. We don't operate any longer like the rest of the world. We have a new king. Their new king wasn't Caesar. Their new king was Jesus, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Their new king was their head, and we learn this in the book of Ephesians, this one now that they could follow after and long after. He's the one that provided all things for them. In other words, not only did he provide peace like the Roman Empire would provide, but now God was going to give us grace upon grace upon grace. It now wasn't the top down, us feeding the top. It was now flipped around where God and himself, Jesus Christ, would give us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Paul says it's just different. We operate in a different way. Now what he's going to do starting in verse 15 is he's going to give us two illustrations. Okay, this is what he's going to do. The first one is going to be 15 through 20 in which he's going to lay out this illustration of what happens though if I feel like I'm in the body that I'm not important. Okay, that's one aspect he's going to look at. The second thing he's going to look at then is what happens though if I look at somebody else and I say, well, you're not important. And what he's going to do is then help us understand using verses 12 through 14 to kind of do this. So look down with me at verse 15. Let me kind of show you where he's going. He's going to see this from two different angles. Look at verse 15. He says, If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And what he's now trying to get is, okay, now if this is truly a body that we understand what is spiritual, on one end, what is spiritual is that love is going to permeate this group of people. If we understand who is spiritual, that means everybody that's placed in this body, they are spiritual. How in the world then can somebody look and say, I'm not important? And he uses the figment of of an ear, he uses the figment of an eye and a foot, and he uses all these things, and he's arguing from the ridiculous to actually the relevant. Now, the ridiculous is some part of the body saying, oh, I don't belong here, there's something about me that doesn't fit. Now, what we do is we sometimes hear this in the church, I'll hear people say this, and they'll say, well, Todd, you know, you're really important to this group of people. You're the one that's important. That's bad theology. 
I'll also sometimes hear, you know what, because I failed in a certain way, because I, I have certain circumstances that are not ideal, maybe I'm in sickness, maybe I've had, maybe I've aged to the point where I just don't feel like I'm useful anymore, maybe I'm too young, which is the biggest lie from the pit of hell in regards to what we understand about young people inside of our church. You know what, Todd? I'm not useful to the church as others. I'll just be a hindrance. Maybe I'll hear people say, you know what, because I'm not a pastor or elder, I'm not important. Or, you know what, if I'm going to really become important here, I need to be going to full-time ministry to make a difference. Paul wants us to get that is nonsense. He's trying to get this idea across to them, and you'll see this in verse 17. Look down there with me. If the whole body were an eye, this is how he's going to get foolish, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be sense of smell? Verse 19. We're a single, if all were a single member, where would the body be? He's saying to them, do you see that it's nonsense that you're belittling yourself and you're not understanding your value to the church? You are the charisma. He's saying to them, do you understand if all of us were like so-and-so, we'd be a bunch of eyes, and this is what I think we'd look like. Here we go. <laughs> that doesn't work. Or if we we're a bunch of ears, this is what we'd look like. Right. Now, within Corinth, their big thing was communicating via speech. Now, that's a huge thing within the United States. In a lot of ways, some people believe that the reason we have the president we have, Barack Obama, is because he was a, a phenomenal orator, which, by the way, sometimes when the church will look and will belittle that. But have you ever noticed that oftentimes the people that we laud the most within the church are the people that can what? Communicate. Now, can you imagine if the church looked like this? Nasty. Now here's what he's trying to say. All these things must be in proportion, and they must be in a proportion, and you are valuable to it. You're important to it. Now I think one of the reasons that we don't see the value of people is because everything tends to center around a weekend gathering or a building or an organization. See, on a Sunday morning, I can get that. Man, Billy's important because he wears tight jeans, right? That's why he's important to us. I thought that was funny. <laughs> Where's Billy? Is Billy in here? Yes, good. Okay, so. No, he's valuable because he plays music. Todd's valuable or, or Josh is valuable or Christian is valuable because they speak. See, the problem with that is, is that it misses the fact that the church is not just designed to operate on a weekend. It is designed to permeate an entire community. Jesus doesn't want to just change our weekends. He wants to change our schools and our politics. He wants to change our workplaces. He wants to change our neighborhoods and our families and our marriages. That the reason that Paul, and I would say this, sees that we become such a communication-oriented church that in some ways doesn't affect the world like we ought to is because the church misses, is that the church operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week in every facet and where we go. You are valuable because everywhere you go, you are the declaration of God to the world to fix brokenness. That starts to bring everything back into balance, doesn't it? Now we understand that if you're somebody in here that's a brand new believer, we have a responsibility in your life to prepare you because everywhere you go, you're a declaration of God. 
If you're somebody in here that, that, is, that is a person that's struggling with sin, we sometimes, instead of that, we tend to ostracize ourselves from people that are struggling with sin instead of diving into their lives and realizing that if we get in there and we help them overcome sin, when they enter into these various facets of life now, they're no longer taking a sinful lifestyle in there. They're taking in and declaring the greatness of Jesus Christ no matter where they go. It doesn't matter if you're old or young. It doesn't matter if you have disabilities or don't have disabilities. His point is, is that every person is valuable. And by the way, it's not an after-school special value where we sit around and go, no, you're valuable. Let us help you find a place. God would look at that and say, I've already found a place. I put them in your church. So he's coming at it from that angle first. That's the first angle. Now look down with me now in the next part of it. Look at verse 21. If the first one is this idea in which now, again, he's setting out these parameters that who is spiritual is everybody that's been brought into Jesus Christ and what is spiritual means how we love one another, how we care for one another. Now in verse 21, he's going to explain it from a different perspective. What if somebody says, we don't need you or I'm more valuable than you are. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Let me read that again. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. There there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. His big thing now that he's going to come at this is to help them understand deep within them that every part is essential, even the weak parts. And I love what he says here. He's bold. You cannot say that that person is not valuable. It's impossible, he's saying. It's this weird thing, if you can imagine, that everybody that comes to Cornerstone, we should view them as an absolute gift. Can you imagine today if I went home to my kids and I said, kids, I got a gift for you. And I walked in with my gift, you know, and I know Brianna would look at me and she'd be like breaking it down, how much did it cost? She's the the anal one. And so she'd be working through all of that. My son wouldn't care. My younger daughter, she would look at me and she would just love me because of whatever. But can you imagine if they grabbed that gift and they went, oh, thanks, and they threw it over their shoulder? His point is is that everybody that comes into the body is a gift. Everybody matters. If you're somebody that's a visitor here today with our particular body, let me just tell you this. If we haven't greeted you in love, we haven't done our job. For those of you that have been around for a while, if we haven't loved on you like you're supposed to, we haven't done our job. His point is that every part, look at the end of verse 22, is absolutely indispensable. 
And it goes back to his understanding of body. In the Roman Empire, the slaves and the plebes didn't matter. They looked at them as in, these people that they could interchange in and out. They weren't a, a big issue to the body that they were involved in. But now all of a sudden it says that God built the body and actually he built it with weaknesses. He built it with people that are unpresentable. Look down in, the, in those passages 21 through 26. They're weaker. They're less honorable. They're lacking. They're suffering. They are placed into the body because, listen to me, as those people get placed into the body and the world watches as those that have come around them, that he even talks about these people, that are the ones that are less weak and they absorb their lives into them, they tell the world that while the world thinks that the weak are disposable, while the world thinks that the weak don't have a place inside of our society, while the world says that we only value people by how much money they have, by the cars that they drive, the schools that they went to, the church says, no, we value every single human life because they were created in the image of God that's the church that's why we care for the unborn that's why we care for the born that's why we care for the elderly that's why we care for those with disabilities the church was designed to absorb all of them in to tell the world as a confrontation to the world every human being matters so Paul wants them to get here He makes a similar argument in the book of Philippians where everybody was looking and saying, Paul, why are you in jail? This is so terrible. He goes, no, you're missing the point. In my weakness, when I got put in jail, do you understand? I emboldened people. People came to Christ by me being put in prison. It's that that, that idea that we sometimes have. I don't know how many of you grew up playing baseball, but if somebody was terrible on your team, what field did they go to? Right field. Did you know in the church there's no such thing as right field? In fact, I was on a team that I had a coach that, that, you know, right-handed batters generally go to left field, and so we would always have this kid, his name was Nick, he was always off in right field. And then when all of a sudden the left-handed batter came up, the coach is like, switch, switch, and then off he'd go to left field. We don't hide our weaknesses, instead what we do is we champion the reality of God's grace come to bear on our weaknesses. That's what Paul's trying to get If you're somebody that's elderly in here that feels like you're kind of getting pushed off to the side, shame on us because God has a plan even to the very moment he calls us home. He doesn't push our students off to the side and say, oh, they're the future of the church. Really? If they're in Christ, Paul tells us, they are the church. That's what he's trying to come across. Do you understand how beautiful this thing is, is what he's saying. And the other aspect about this, with the weak being in there, what that means is in your weakness, the gospel can't be stopped. Even at your lowest point, the gospel goes forward because right behind the sour notes of weakness always comes the the absolute angelic noise of grace. Paul says, that's the body. I think if you were here today, he'd say, do you see it? Do you see her in all her beauty? Do you see her in the fact that there's red and yellow and brown and white? Inside of this group of people, there are men and women. There are young and old, skinny and fat. He's just saying, do you see all these people that God's brought in there? Do you see the church? And by the time he gets to verse 27, this is what he's trying to get across to them. And he looks at them and says to them, you are the body of Christ. Individually, all of you are members of it. All of you. 
If you're in Christ, you are the body. He looks at him and says, God put you there. And he puts you there to operate inside of this love, this what is spiritual and who is spiritual. And now he's going to give him a new list, starting in verse 28. Verse 8, he'd kind of given him one list. And he kind of showed all the ways the Spirit manifests himself. In other words, back to our analogy of the, of the orchestra, all the different noises that might come out of a church. Now watch what he does in verse 28. He's going to change it a little bit. Now God has appointed, meaning he chose, in the, first, in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and he's not trying to put them in order. It's just like, I don't know, apostles and prophets and teachers. In other words, he's not trying to put them in an order. And then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. He just says, look at it. Now go back to the, the symphony hall. Remember when I was telling you when I watched Beethoven's Ninth? It's almost as if God is bringing him in and saying, see this piece of music the father wrote? He's the one that composed it. See the one standing up there, that he's the one waving the whole church into action. Do you see him? He's the conductor. Then finally, he says, do you see the spirit hovering amongst his church? He's the one that's orchestrating and pulling it all together. But then in this cool moment, all of a sudden, verse 27, he now looks at him and says, do you see the church? Now, just for a second, I know this is weird, okay? Look around here. When's the last time you came in and just looked at faces? Just looked out over all these people. You don't understand. I'm standing up there while we're singing, and I'm looking out over this church. And these were echoing in my head, Paul going, do you see the church? You ever noticed what we look like? For living in Simi Valley, we're kind of diverse, which I love. It's this group of people that are blood-bought. All of you come into this church and you bring something with you. His point of apostles and prophets and teachers just means the roles you're supposed to play. He's saying there's trumpeters and there's oboists and there's flutists and there's all these different ones that contribute to the symphony. Not only that, but he said then there's different noises that they make. Some people, it says, get involved in healing and some people get involved in, in tongues and, and then almost to take their, their, their world of kind of loving miracles and the dynamic stuff, he says, and then there's, there's helps and there's people that administrate. He says, do you see all the church? Do you see it? And remember as we work through the book of 1 Corinthians, the one thing we keep saying to ourselves is they missed the point. Look down at verse 31. He says, this is where you're missing the point. He says, now I want you to earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now what's he saying there? Some churches teach that there's a higher set of gifts that we're supposed to go after. In other words, the church in Corinth thought tongues was the highest one, and then you, there was a, a kind of an order to which they came, which I don't think Paul's saying here. Some people might teach this, and one of the ways I think you can really look at it is, is that seek after the thing that he's going to talk about in verse 14 that just builds the church the most. That means on a Sunday morning, kind of preaching and music, they tend to be the more important ones. But if somebody's dying in the hospital, they don't need me to come in and say, hey, so glad to see you. Why don't you open your Bible? I'd like to uh, preach to you out of chapter 12. They're going to look at me like, dude, are you kidding me? I'm dying. They need mercy and grace. He's trying to tell them maybe in one instance this idea, I want you to seek after the things that, number one, 
demonstrate love in the greatest way. And number two, give honor and dignity to every single person that's inside of your church. I think that's even what he means in chapter 13 by love. That's one way to look at it. That's a command. It could just be a statement of fact. He could just be looking at him and saying it as a statement of fact. You know what? But you are desiring the higher gifts. You're going after this thing you don't need to. You're pursuing after the showy gifts, the stuff that goes crazy and whiz, bang, boom. He goes, you don't have to do that. In fact, his point is, is I'm going to show you now a greater way. Look down at the end of verse 31. I will still show you a more excellent way. I think he almost just smiled as he dropped his pen to talk and he's setting him up for chapter 13. Let me land this a little bit. If any of you in here do not believe you're valuable to this church, Paul would look at you and say, that's foolish. Every one of you in here are valuable. Never buy into the lie of Satan that says that I'm not valuable. The problem is you may not see where God is going to use you to accomplish things. And by the way, he uses you to do all kinds of things. We just don't see it. The other aspect of it is, is would you please help us out here? The pastors of Cornerstone are not the most invaluable people at Cornerstone. Today a kid walked up to me and she says to me, hey, what does it feel like to own this whole church? <laughs> Whoever her parents are, and I'll talk to them later, that's bad theology. <laughs> and I looked down at her and I said, oh, this church isn't mine. I go, and this building isn't the church. I said, see all these people? And she goes, yeah. I go, that's the church and Jesus owns them. She goes, no. This group of people is designed by God to declare to the world that Jesus is Lord. We are who we are because Jesus put us in here. And how we exist is in love. Now one of the things we're going to get to do today is we're going to get to baptize some people. They're people that are saying they want to be a part of God's kingdom. Now, they've already come to faith, and so what I want you to do is that everybody that get baptized today, I want you to cheer like you've never cheered before. Not because we're trying to somehow help their self-esteem. They don't need that. They're going to do this anyways. And really, the cheering's not for them. I want us to cheer for God in that. Is that all right? Can we do that? They are part of the body, all right? And so we're going to have baptisms. I know of about two or three that are going to come up. If more of you want to get baptized today so we can cheer for you, I mean, that'll be really, I'm kidding. Nobody even caught that. Ah. <laughs> Thank you. If you want to get baptized today, we'd love to baptize you. But don't miss this. You are the body of Christ. Are you with me? Yep. You're with me. All right. Let's pray. We'll bring Billy up. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Father, would you help us to be the church that you've designed us to be? Father, would you help all of us in here to understand that our value is not in what we do. Please help us to get that our value is in who we are and the reality that you've placed us in here. You've set us apart. You've made us your own. We're kids of the king. Help us to start realizing who we are in Christ matters more than anything. 
Father, then would you help us to start living like Christ? Would you help us start loving like Christ? Father, help us to love stretchingly like Peter talks about, or help us to, to love passionately like Paul talks about. Help this church to be known, not only as a church of the word, but, Father, as a church that loves incredibly. Father, we'll be defined by what, by what Scripture tells us to be defined by. Help us to be that. And then, Father, unleash your church to be who you've designed us to be, that Jesus Christ might be declared as Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. This is my husband, David. Um, we struggled on a path of figuring out which way we wanted to go, and the devil had always been pulling at us. And um, we made a decision to follow Jesus and live with Christ in our hearts. And he today is making that decision to walk with him. <laughs> You want to baptize him? I always tell people that the one qualification to baptize, you know, is if you've been baptized. And so we were talking, and I said, have you been baptized? She goes, yeah. I go, you want to baptize him? She goes, can I? <laughs> Let me just ask you a couple of questions. Okay, are you trusting in Christ alone and no one else for your salvation? You understand that today, this doesn't make you saved. What it does is it's the, it's the proclamation to God and to all these people that you want to follow Jesus Christ. Is that what you want? And you understand that you're committing to follow Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? And see all those people out there? That's the church. <clears throat> That's your family, all right? That's the people that you walk with now. That's your clan. That's your club. That's your gang. That's your pick a thing. That's the church. Very cool. All right. So it's our privilege today to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. She's not sure if she wants to put you on there. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. All right. Uh, One more, it's just going to take a little time to, to get him up here. So give us, give us some patience. Can go first. Are you ready? Take this. How you guys doing? <laughs> I want to introduce you to Daryl. He's been, I guess, God has a God always had a plan for him. He almost died in a motorcycle accident. Almost died of electrical shock, and then he had a he had a blood clot. I think it was like four years ago, and cost him to have a stroke. 
and um, how God wants to use us no matter what situation we're in, what disability we have, who we are at that point. And I believe God's going to use Daryl in some awesome ways. He wants to be baptized today and just give us life to Christ. of his understanding of God's love for him and his lead of Jesus being his Savior, he wants to declare to you guys publicly that he's willing to follow him whatever it costs. And so that today, Darrell, we're going to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jeff, I'd love for you to... <laughs> 